0: Good morning, beloved. Good morning. Great to see everyone here today. You guys are all looking great. This time we uh, turn our attention to the preaching of God's word, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, chapter 2. Colossians, chapter 2. Our verses for this morning will be verses 16 to 23. If you were with us last week, we started this final section of the chapter, we worked our way down to around verse 18, and so today we'll finish up the verses that we started last week, and uh, we'll finish up the rest of the chapter today. So let's get right into it. We are in Colossians chapter 2 and we're going to start in verse 16. Here now the words of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul writes, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh." The um, majority of chapter 2 has been a warning. As the Apostle Paul sounds the alarm about an encroaching threat that will endanger the spiritual health and vitality of the Colossian church. And this looming danger is the infiltration of false teaching, which essentially came to be known as the Colossian heresy. Now, the Colossian heresy was incredibly dangerous It was multifaceted. It was quite confusing. Um, Paul identifies four main elements in our verses. And really, I kind of picture it as four muddy streams all coming down and flowing together to form one polluted river. And that's what you have with the Colossian heresy. It was an odd mixture of four different strains of error. You had Greek philosophy. Jewish legalism, Eastern mysticism, and then to sweeten the blend, a rigid kind of asceticism. And so there were elements of paganism with worship of angels and visions mixed together with the Judaizers type heresy, which required circumcision for salvation based on works. And that was the same heresy that Paul deals with in the Galatian epistle. It's also the same error that is condemned by the very first church council which we read last week in Acts chapter 15. And as we saw earlier in this chapter, Paul condemns worldly philosophy which he also exposes earlier. In 1 um, in Corinthians as well, they were some uh, there that we're trying to upgrade the gospel by blending it with the wisdom of this world which of course is foolishness before god that's first corinthians three, eighteen through 19 says do not deceive yourselves if any one of you thinks he is wise in this age he should become a fool so that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in god's sight And then for good measure, to make it all seem super spiritual, the false teachers had added claims of heavenly visions. And they had burdened down the gospel with a list of all these man-made rules against all kinds of earthly enjoyments. And so Paul condemns these practices systematically going one by one as you go through this second chapter. Last week, we spent the majority of our time covering the bondage of legalism. In fact, that started in verse 16. Paul condemns the Judaizers' error in really just one sentence in the Greek. He writes in verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These, Paul writes, are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then the other three strands of deception are all alluded to in verse 18, where Paul says, And let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's, that's one of them, and that's only listed in the ESV. So if you're not looking at ESV, you don't see that word there. Um, and worship of angels, going in details about vision, that's mysticism. And then he says, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, literally his fleshly mind. And that, again, is referring to man-made philosophy or Gnosticism. And so it seems evident to me that whoever was peddling these ideas to the Colossians wanted a religion that sounded more sophisticated and more familiar to the people in this Greek culture, more relatable to the secular folks, the wisdom-loving Greeks, than the pure and simple gospel of Jesus Christ it wasn't quite sophisticated enough for them it didn't meet all their felt needs you know it didn't jive with what they had already believed and so the false teachers who undoubtedly claimed to be Christians as heretics always do they thought perhaps they were merely improving on the simplicity of the gospel by adding on these beliefs that were more in harmony with what the people in that culture were drawn to And we see this in the church today as well as the church keeps adding in more and more of the world in an attempt to draw the world in. However, the moment that you do that, you have distorted the purity of the gospel as you now have a blend of man's teachings and philosophies mixed in with a little bit of the revealed truth of God's word. Maybe we'll preach about God's word for about five or ten minutes. We don't want to keep the people too long. They got the world they got to go back to. And so what you end up with is what Paul says in Galatians 1.6 a different gospel. Congratulations you've brought the world into the church and now you're not the church at all. The different gospel cannot save you. And you know this is essentially what the Pharisees did in the time that, that Jesus walked the earth as they added man-made requirements about ceremonial washings and extra rules for the Sabbath observances and a whole lot of external and um, ritual embellishments and they added all of this to the clear commandments of the Mosaic Covenant and so Jesus condemned them for doing that in the most emphatic way possible he told them in Matthew 15 verse 3 Why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? And then down in verse 6, he adds, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. He said, You hypocrites! These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says their religion was utterly worthless. It's vain. Because it was a synchronized blend of biblical commandments mixed in with man-made religion. And that's why Jesus says, in vain do they worship me. And so Jesus treated it as a damnable heresy. And the same thing was beginning to happen among the Colossian believers as well. And it's why Epaphras, their pastor, Had traveled over a thousand miles to seek Paul's apostolic authority to speak into these dangerous teachings, which threatened the purity of the gospel and the surrounding churches. The religion being pushed upon them was trending towards a kind of um, externalism that was very much like what the Pharisees had taught as they were obsessed with the festivals, the new moon sacrifices and the Sabbath. And furthermore, because this was predominantly a Gentile region, most of the people in that church were probably Gentiles, and so the push to contextualize the gospel for that culture had also blended in Gnostic ideas, and Greek philosophy, and Eastern mysticism, along with that asceticism. And all that combined, then overlaid with the gospel in a way that obscured the preeminence and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's writing to correct all of those tendencies and his strategy is to restore Christ to his rightful place in the hearts and minds of the Colossian believers. And you'll say in the opening verses of chapter 3, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, at the right hand of God the Father. Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things. Now the central truth of chapter 2 is spelled out pretty clearly for us back in verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the point here is there is no need to try to embellish the gospel with the wisdom of the Greeks or the tradition of the Jews or the legalism of the Pharisees. Christ is perfectly sufficient, thank you. He alone embodies everything we need for life and godliness. He is, after all, God incarnate. Verse 9 told us, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Whereas the ESV says filled. In other words, there is nothing more for you to add. And therefore, whether it's human philosophy, Jewish legalism, Paul says nothing can be added to it. And so again, it's all underscoring the absolute sufficiency we have in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, since all that is true, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. And this is referring to the Old Testament dietary laws or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Legalism is a doctrine straight out of hell. It's the religion of human achievement over divine accomplishment. John MacArthur writes, Legalism argues that spirituality is based on Christ plus human works. It makes conformity to man-made rules the measure of one's spirituality. Believers, however, are complete in Christ as he has provided their complete salvation, end quote. Listen to what Paul said when referring to the traits of legalism in First Timothy chapter 4, 1 through 4. He writes, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. How will they fall away from the faith, you ask? Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You want to know what legalism is? is the doctrine of demons. By means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Now listen to what they did. These were men who forbid marriage and advocated abstaining from foods, which, notice, God had created to be received with thanksgiving. By those who believe and know the truth, for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. And so, the point that Paul's making back in Colossians 2 is don't let anyone pass judgment on you. This is man's laws, not God's. Yes, for a time there was a shadow. And for the people of Israel, God gave them a dietary law to keep, festivals to commemorate, to celebrate what God had done, and a Sabbath day to provide them rest. These were all a part of the old covenant. That one day would be fulfilled perfectly in the person and work in Jesus Christ. And now Paul says, these were all a shadow of the things to come. And now the substance has come. It belongs to Christ. He's already come. So Paul says, watch out for legalism. Then his next warning was number two, the deception of mysticism. Verse 16, the warning was legalism. Let no one judge you. In verse 18, the warning's mysticism. Let no one disqualify you. Notice what it says in verse 18. And this is a rather challenging text um, to not only identify who these people were, but also the translation isn't exactly the best. So I might refer to more of the Greek word-by-word translation. I am using an ESV, if you're wondering. The ESV is in your... Um, pew but anyways in verse 18 Paul writes let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and your translation might not say um, that it probably says uh, like a false humility and here that, that is a better translation let no one disqualify you who delights in a false humility and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous or earthly mind. Let me just start off with a simple layman's definition of mysticism that we can all kind of understand. Mysticism is the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. Verse 18 says they go on in detail about visions puffed up without reason. Mystics often look for truth internally as they often weighed it based upon their feelings and intuition now these false teachers would say things like oh I'm always talking with God and even when I'm sleeping God will all of a sudden wake me up and say Nick get up I I really need to run something by you I mean this is the kind of stuff that's being talked about and happened back then the text says they had a false humility that they would go on in detail about these visions they were They were puffed up for no reason. Always talked about these subjective experiences that they supposedly had. These guys believed they had attained a a piety that was unlike anything you or I couldn't quite get to. And so there was a real looking down on the church and and they were the the leaders and, and the wise teachers. It's possible Paul is referring to the Essenes here Um, The Essenes were a Jewish sect that flourished around the end of the second temple period between the second century B.C. and the first century. Um, They were like the Pharisees in that they were a separatist group. They they separated themselves from those dirty, sinful people. And and this grew out of the conflicts in the Maccabean age. And they saw themselves as the genuine remnant, the, the true Israel. They were Jewish. And upholding the true covenant with God. They, they followed God's laws perfectly and they came up with other ones so that um, you wouldn't even get close to um, the original law because they had put so many fences around the original law that, that if you broke one of those you were still several, several laws away from breaking the actual law. So they were separatists. These are people who lived out in the desert These are the ones who um, transcribed the Dead Dead Sea Scrolls and all that. These were the guys. They were known for their strictness of their piety. They spent most of their day just reflecting on spiritual things. It's hard to say if this is who Paul's referring to here, though I did read they had quite the fascination with angels as well. People always talking about angels and visions. So if they were indeed offering worship to angels, and these, these people were, which John specifically in Revelation is told by the angel, get up, don't worship me. I'm a created being just like you. You worship God. But if they did, these Essenes, if they were the ones who were worshiping the angels, they probably claimed that they did it because they just weren't worthy enough to approach God directly. There was this false humility about them. And that's what verse 18 talks about false humility and the worship of angels. That's what that is talking about. And then in verse 18 he also takes up the subject of, of mystical asceticism in his reproof. He talks about the guy who goes into detail about visions he had seen. And, and of course in the evangelical world today um, it's filled with people like that. Um, if you turn on your TV they'll talk nonstop about extra biblical visions and how they spent the afternoon walking with Jesus and they're always up in heaven with the angels and and that's pretty much all that they talk about. It seems that's more important than ever opening up their Bible and reading what the Word of God actually says. And and then Paul takes a poke at the Gnostic ascetics here. This is the person who claims to be um, privy to secret knowledge. But Paul says he's just puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind which is really an accurate description of the spirit of Gnosticism. Gnostics were puffed up by their arrogant brand of religiosity. They're the person who thinks he has been specially enlightened in regard to some secret knowledge which makes him puffed up without reason. In other words, no matter how strict his brand of asceticism might be, it's sensuous. It's sheer carnality. It's fleshly. It's not actually spiritual. Gnostics tend to be exactly like the Pharisees in that regard. And it's true of every brand of asceticism. They wear the badges of their piety on their sleeves for carnal reasons. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, and that's what Jesus said of the Pharisees. They would go into the temples in the streets and go on with these long, elaborate prayers. What? So they could be seen by other men. God said they've got their reward. You go in your room in the closet and pray in secret to your Heavenly Father. And so Paul's point is all of these four strains of error fail. And although all of them promise that they can catapult the followers into a, a higher plane of, of worship and sanctification and holiness, they actually halt a person's spiritual growth because all of them move the focus of the believer away from where it properly belongs. Namely, that our focus should be fixated singularly on Christ. And he keeps showing us that in these verses. Instead of all of these embellishments directing a person's energy and attention to something that has nothing to do with the commandments and doctrines of Christ. And that's what these guys did. Verse 19 says that those who embrace these errors are not holding fast to the head, which is Christ. From whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. That's how we grow. With a growth that is from God. So they don't do that. They are the separatists. Um, They have their own way of achieving holiness and wisdom and higher spiritual levels. But Paul says hold fast to Christ, he's the head of the church. And that's how the whole body is nourished because we're knit together as if we were joints and ligaments growing as a body with Christ as the head. And what he's implying there is you won't grow if you add all of these embellishments to your self-made religion. Spiritual growth simply does not occur when people turn away from Christ and follow other things or add things to Christ. And the other thing that had really captured the attention of the Colossians was this, boils down to this one thing, asceticism. Asceticism. In fact, um, if you look in the back of your bulletin, this is the focus of the last couple of verses, 20 through 23. And once you know what it entails, you can start to see its marks all throughout this text. And so if you want just kind of a general definition of it, asceticism is a rigorous but artificial piety where self-deprivation is practiced for religious reasons. In other words, an ascetic would be somebody who sells everything and goes and lives off in a faraway monastery, for example, or as the Essenes did out in the desert. That was so spiritual. Look at me. I sold everything. And these religious phonies in Colossae were saying that the only true form of spirituality that one could experience came through this kind of self denial. Now, Christ said, Deny, did, did say to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He didn't say, Deny yourself, go sell all your belongings, and go hang out by yourself in a desert. And they used this as a means of spirituality, too. They didn't just go and disappear here this group is coming to these group of christians and saying oh you're you're not quite there yet you're not like us this is what we do and so every form of it is unnecessary it's a distraction from the pure and simple gospel of jesus christ who's preeminent in everything but especially in his church and among his people and that's what paul keeps reminding us here that if you have christ you don't need anything else That if you have Christ, why would you try to find sanctification or satisfaction in man-made religion devised for yourself? (laughs) If Christ's work on our behalf is enough to save us, why would anyone add the burden of extra rules and supplemental works to your own? Why do people do that? That's what Paul is saying. He wants them to see the absolute sufficiency that there is in Jesus Christ in Christ you have been made complete. Well that brings us to this final section here and so in verses 20 through 23 Paul gives three reasons why this type of aesthetic religion is a corruption of the gospel. First he points out asceticism is works based secondly asceticism is worldly and number three asceticism is worthless in stopping the flesh or in other words all the errors that were being spread in the Colossian church were either works-oriented, worldly in their teaching, and therefore they are worthless. So let's begin with number one, asceticism is works-based. Works-based. And I want to set these verses as a whole in your mind again. So let's read 20 to 23 before we get into these. And I want you to notice exactly what Paul says here with some of the things we've already talked about. Notice what it says in verse 20. It says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used, according to human precepts and teachings. These are teachings of of men. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity of the body. But notice, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul's making the point here that our own merit-based works don't play any part whatsoever in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And apparently these false teachers were promoting the same errors that Paul had addressed back in the book of Galatians when they were saying things like, you couldn't be saved unless you were circumcised. And they also had to observe all the ceremonial and dietary laws of the Old Covenant. And so Peter or Paul here corrects that. He refutes it. And in doing so, he's simply echoing the teachings of Christ. To impose any laws about ceremonial cleanliness or to impose the Old Testament dietary restrictions would be contrary to what the Lord Jesus Christ taught. Mark chapter 7 verse 15, listen to the words of Jesus Christ. He says there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Have you ever thought about that statement and how it must have impacted the Jewish people who had first heard this? I mean their their floors must have hit the mouth and if you don't understand uh, the Jewish uh, system and and the Old Testament, um, you'd be kind of missing this, but I think through some of the verses and and the teaching that you're going to receive, you're going to get a basic idea of it. Um, But just know this, that this was totally opposite to what they had been taught in the Old Testament. This would be like saying that it would be very hard for anyone who is steeped in Moses' law to receive, because the law is actually full of ordinances about ceremonial defilement, And all of them have to do with external contact. So it appears that Christ is saying the exact opposite of what is said in the Old Testament and what the Jewish people lived by. Let me give you an example of this. Numbers chapter 19.11, for example, is just one example of hundreds that I could pull out of the Old Testament. But in Numbers chapter 19.11, it says this. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days alright and by the way getting rid of that uncleanliness required ceremony cleansings twice you see down in verse 12 uh, once on the third day and then once again on the seventh day he had to go get um, ceremonially cleansed and then it adds at the end of verse 12 but if he does not purify himself on the third day and the seventh day he will not be clean And then down in verse 13, anyone who touches a corpse and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of Yahweh. And that person shall be cut off from Israel. This is pretty serious stuff. So if you don't go through the ceremony cleansings and you were to go inside the temple, now you've defiled the entire temple. And that's grounds for excommunication. You're out of here. Verse 13 continues, because the water for impurity... Was not splashed on him, scripture says. He shall remain unclean. And his uncleanliness is still on him. So he goes through the rest of his life unclean if he has not been ceremonially cleansed. Twice during the week. And there was all these sorts of rules and stipulations on how to be clean and unclean. So all that is to say is if you were defiled ceremonially, it was a huge deal. A, a ceremonial ordeal to, to get past in order to be clean. And then there were lots of things that could defile you. It wasn't just dead bodies. Lots of foods. Um, if you ate, you could also become defiled. And so when Jesus then comes along and he says, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him in Mark seven fifteen, the disciples are totally confused. And Jesus' answer to them is significant. He says down in Mark chapter 7, verse 18, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart. And here he's talking about spiritual defilement of the heart. It does not go into the heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. And then Mark, who's writing this gospel, adds this inspired commentary to the comment that Jesus makes. And Mark adds, thus, he declared all foods clean. When Jesus said nothing that goes in you can defile you, he as God has officially nullified all of the dietary laws with defilement, food defilement. They were instantly rendered null and void because they were symbolic ceremonial in the first place. They were only temporary. And as Paul says back in our text in Colossians 2, verse 22, these rules refer to things that are all destined to perish as they are used. They were themselves temporary in nature and they were never more than temporal in substance and value. They were never meant to last for eternity or we would still have a temple and we'd still be making sacrifices. Again, these were verse 17 a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to Christ. Let me read to you what Paul said to the Galatians who were also dealing with this. And so when the Jews and Gentiles came together, this was a huge deal. The Jews are trying to get the Gentiles to become Jewish. And the Gentiles are saying, but Paul told us we're saved by faith in Christ. Oh, Paul didn't tell you the whole thing. There's more for you to do. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to follow these laws. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. You're ceremonially unclean. We've got to get you cleansed. What? These were the things that were going on. Listen to Galatians. This will help fill in a little bit more of your understanding of the law, the purpose, why the change, what's going on. Galatians 3 in in, in chapter 3, verse 21 through 27 is is a great little small section that will sum up basically what we're talking about. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is, Is the Old Testament law just, what was the point of it? May it never be. First of all, let me be very clear that when we're talking about the law, we're not talking about the moral law. It's now not okay to kill your neighbor. You still need to love your neighbor. These are the ceremonial laws. They're broken up into three sections. The ceremonial laws as as we're talking about here. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For the law had been given which was able to impart law if... Let me start again. If a law had been given which was able to impart life then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. You could have earned righteousness based on how well you kept the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. That's what the law does. It's our schoolmaster, our tutor, that leads us to Christ. It shows us we didn't keep the law. And so we're in desperate need of a savior. So the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. It's condemned us as broken the law. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up of the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become, look at this, our tutor, our, uh, the King James says, schoolmaster, to lead us to who? Christ. The law should lead you to Christ. So that we may be justified, that's a big word, by faith. But now that faith has come, here's the substance in the shadow. But now that faith has come, there's your substance, we are no longer under a tutor. Why? Because it was a shadow. For you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. For you all have been baptized into Christ, having clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, if you ever get caught up in some kind of law-keeping scheme in order to be made right with God, pull out the book of Galatians and start reading it. It'll fix it for you. All right? To be justified by the law is a fruitless work on your part. The law is a tutor which leads us to Christ. It says, we've broken God's law. I need a Savior. The law was designed to teach people about the absolute holiness also of God. And to set the requirement for righteousness so high, 613 laws, that people realize the depravity of our our hearts. And the only hope they have was to look for Jesus, our perfect Savior, who went to the cross on Calvary and laid his life down as a ransom for many. And so that's what Paul means when he says the law was our tutor that led us to Christ. And therefore, when Christ came, he abolished the dietary restrictions. And since he did that, this is then arrogant folly to make new rules about clean and unclean foods and think that by doing that, that you're honoring Christ? What those rules do is establish a system of works, works works-based righteousness. They are inherently and definitionally. definitionally self-righteous because they're not the expression of the righteousness of God. They're commands that tell us, look, if you really want to be righteous, here's what you've got to do. These restrictions upon your life were supposed to make you appear super spiritual. The aesthetics uh, who would put the rules like this in place thought that. But actually they're expressions of self-will rather than the will of God. And that's why we should never impose any spiritual rule on other people that isn't expressly taught in Scripture. We're not to be narrower than Scripture. We're not to be broader than Scripture. We're not to heap up more rules and regulations on people and make it such a burden that that people collapse underneath it. And we're not supposed to take the law and say, oh, well, that doesn't really apply. Uh, Grace abounds. In fact, um, I like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, you are not to exceed what is written. Alright? If you want a a rule or a law to live by, that's a good one. It's biblical and it's an important warning. If you exceed what is written, watch out lest you become arrogant. That's how you're going to come across to people with all these additional things that God has not said. And this is Romans chapter 14 again when we talk about the conscience and we looked at that last week. Now, there's one thing I wanted to point out to you because Paul uses an interesting word in verse 20. As here he speaks of these legalist lists of do's and don'ts. See where he asks, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, would you submit to regulations? It's the word decrees in the New American Bible. It's the Greek word dogmanizo, which you recognize as similar to the English word uh, dogmas. These are human decrees. They're extra-biblical regulations. And I like how Paul starts verse 20 with this question. If with Christ you died to the elemental, and I should say principles, if Christ you died to the elemental principles of the world, why? As if you were still alive in the world, functioning in the world, do you submit to these regulations of the world, like of man? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And this is the aesthetic list of do's and don'ts. And these are, again, traditions of men. Empty works governing your relationships with external things. And the aim, purposely, if you obey them, is to gain righteousness. To earn righteousness. And thereby add something of, of merit to the perfect righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us. Does that make sense? It even sounds foolish, doesn't it? Because when we died with Christ, the moment we believed, we were totally and completely justified by him as his righteousness was imputed into our account. He already obeyed God's law perfectly, which you and I couldn't do. And his righteousness is imputed to us in the same way that he bore all of our sin and he paid our debt in full. Complete, it is finished. So, if I have the perfect righteousness of Christ, and it is by definition perfect, how could I ever think something that I might do might embellish or add to it? Ridiculous. That's arrogance. And that's Paul's point. That asceticism inherently is works-based religion. And there was hardly any flavor of heresy that Paul hated more Because guess what? Paul was delivered out of that system, wasn't he? And so what he's saying here is asceticism is by definition works-based religion. Stay away from it. Number two and three are going to be quick. Asceticism is also worldly in teaching. And we've essentially seen that. And there's an irony here because asceticism claims to be (laughs) otherworldly. And the ascetic believes that by saying no to earthly enjoyments... Then he's actually living an elevated spiritual consciousness. But Paul says his whole way of thinking is actually rooted in the elementary principles of the world. These are the ABCs. In other words, it's worldly. The beliefs and lifestyles of an aesthetic deal only with worldly and temporal issues. Verse 22, referring to the things that all perish. All the rules and regulations that have been cobbled together to make these Religious systems are according to human commandments and teachings. These are all man-made religions. And in fact, he refers to this brand of spirituality in verse 23 as self-made religion. And that's a good translation of this word, as indeed they had the appearance of being wise and holy as they were separate from the world and from all its sinful pleasures. But really, they were only promoting themselves with this um, false humility and asceticism as they would sleep on beds of stone to, to prove how holy they were and how much they suffer for Christ. And later with the monks and priests, they were known to whip themselves across the back as self-abasement was the severe treatment of the body. And all of this was man-made and of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, the Bible says. In other words, man-made rules have no power or ability to change fallen man's heart and overcome its sinful desires. And so asceticism becomes a man-centered religion, a religion that magnifies the human will rather than God's. Asceticism does this by imposing, substituting, self-imposed man-made rules that ultimately become substitutes for God's commands. The assumption that underlines this tendency is the false notion that righteousness ultimately is attained by the exercise of human willpower and nothing could be farther from the truth asceticism may have as Paul says in verse 23 an appearance of wisdom but to borrow the words from James 3.15 this wisdom is not from that which comes from above but it's earthly, natural and demonic that's what James said about it so it's worldly wisdom as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.19 the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God and as we close today with point number three asceticism is worthless it's worthless if you haven't figured that out by now. End of verse 23. But all these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Asceticism might make the appearance before men as appearing spiritual, but only truly serves as gratifying the flesh and pride. Oh, on the outside, in the sight of men, it might appear spiritual, but it cannot transform your heart in the sight of God. These things can't renew your mind. They won't give you a new heart, new affections for Christ, new things for his kingdom. At the end of the day, they are then worthless. It's a worthless religion to follow. Now remember, all these strains of error, all of them come together. And whether you combine them or, or keep each one of these things separate, ultimately they're all established, one or another, brand of a super um, spiritual Pious legalism. That's what this all is all about. This is a a super they, they think they're so spiritual. It's legalistic. They're full of pride and all of them are marked by that pride and self will. But here I just want you to see that it's practically the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying. He says asceticism is worldly. It's rooted in the elementary principles of the world and the cure that he's going to prescribe for them is in the very next chapter, chapter 3, and verses 1 through 2, and we'll close with these verses. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of a God, set your minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. You know. In this world, there are certainly temptations to um, just straight out sin, but there's also these temptations of sinful self-humility where you think you're doing something and as a matter to earn the respect and the prestige of those around you by how religious you might come off and, and holy you might become. And it's funny. Sometimes I'll be around people and they start talking to me like, I'm not a human being. I'm just like, stop talking to me like I'm a, your pastor and tell me what's really going on. Um, there's, there's this very real thing that's out there that people think that they can earn their religious standing in God and respect from their brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to remind you to come in with humility as our Lord did, as a humble servant, lowly, desperate, broke, seeking Christ, holding on to Christ, um, and that we're seeking the things that are above and not so caught up on all the things that are going on in in this world. That's the end of chapter two. I hope it blessed you. Um, If you are in need of prayers this morning, I want to invite you to come forward and please stand as we sing the song of invitation. Thank you.